Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of September 16th, 2019. On the show today, news, listener questions, and Jim tells us about the history of the Universe of Energy Pavilion. And speaking of Jim, let's bring in the man who observes that his car keys have traveled farther than his car. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? That's largely because my car keys always move after I put them down. They're never where I left them. And wondering among our listeners, does anybody know of a good automotive exorcist? Because I'm tired of chasing these things around the house. I think uh, there's that, uh, was that the tile uh, GPS USB Bluetooth thing that you can attach to them? Ah, uh, technology, Len. I, I have my problem. Oh, right. I forgot is, you live in the uh, woods of New Hampshire. <laughs> well, more to the point, I have a personal technology dampening field. I mean, I, I can literally stop devices from working by standing next to them. So Okay, alternate, alternate idea. Mm-hmm. You know, in cartoons, there are always St. Bernard's that are carrying like barrels underneath their, mm-hmm. their chins with like supplies for stranded mountain climbers. Mm-hmm. Same idea, but for car keys. Oh, see, this is where I've gone wrong. I, I attach them to the cat. The, the cat is uh, cat is always the bad idea for keeping things. Okay. Yes. My mistake. All right. My now, mistake. That, now that we know, Jim, we'll do better. Okay. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Jay Fitty, Jesse P, and Brent B., and the longtime subscribers, Jennifer S., Mighty Librarian, also the horse that I have at Pimlico this weekend, and David C. You know, Jim, we're coming up on the end of Epcot's Illuminations, and I just want to take a minute to recognize the contributions of these folks to that show. They are the ones, Jim, who go out night after night with nothing more than a couple of Bic lighters and some gunpowder and set off all the fireworks that you see in this nighttime spectacular I hear a couple of eyebrows may have been lost along the way, but in any event, Jim, some truly amazing work. Thank you, folks. Very cool. Out ahead of the last illuminations, I've been doing some research, which we may need to circle around on, uh, about the La Carnival de Lumiere, the very first Lagoon show. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was some stuff in the Buzz Price archives on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do our September 30th show on the history of illuminations? Actually, let's make it the first October show. Okay. So we'll do the uh, the history of Illuminations and the creation of the new Epcot Forever, Forever show because I'm seeing both of those mm-hmm. at the end of this month. So let's do a uh, let's do our first show in October on that. Okay. Well, hopefully by then Jay Fiddy's eyebrows will have grown back. <laughs> Get some much needed uh, rest. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, word on the street is that cast member previews of the Disney Skyliner begin this week. I've also heard that some cast members got rides over the weekend. If video footage of this isn't available by the time the show drops, I will be moderately surprised. I think you and I are pretty pretty optimistic about the Skyliner. How's Disney feeling about it? Given that there's a yet another hurricane out in the Caribbean right now. Is there really? Yeah. <laughs> if Walt Disney World managers had had their way, they wouldn't be launching this during uh, hurricane season. There is so much writing on this. They're going to be operating this transportation system with an abundance of caution during the first year. Because again, if this sure. hits... And it does become Disney World's equivalent of the cable cars in San Francisco, something you have right. to do. And if this hits, there's an expansion potentially in the works to all the way to Disney Springs. Likewise, a further expansion out to Animal Kingdom Lodge and Kidani Village with an offshoot 
that would go over to the Coronado. I think that Western expansion makes complete sense, but I understand the uh, the Disney Springs too. Yeah, thing for uh, just from a, you know a revenue perspective. First year of operation. They want to make a good impression. So if there are weather issues, they're going to apologize profusely and direct you to a bus. But they can't sure. have this thing breaking down. Right. Yeah, you don't want uh, that to be the first impression people have. I'm going to be trying this out at the end of the month. I'm also super excited for that. Okay. Well, again, remember, wear a large coat. Like a lunch? Well, I was thinking <laughs> more to the effect, if you are, in fact, bringing green water balloons, a large overcoat. <laughs> I'll see what I can do about that. Okay. All right, Jim, another news event uh, last week, one we all expected, was the closing of some future world areas for new construction. So uh, we think the Fountain of Nations may have sprayed its last guest with mist. Club Cool is closed, uh, but it'll probably be relocated to Future World East because that's super popular. Mm -hmm. Colortopia and the Nanu's break area are, Jim, but dust in the wind. And the Epcot character spot has moved across the walkway to the old area of Innovations West. I actually like this. Hmm. spot a little bit better than the original spot. So that's encouraging. Between the teardown and, and all that, just apologizing for all the folks who are headed to food and wine and want that pleasant, you know, dining experience, you know, jackhammers tend to take away from that. It's the wonderful world of uh, painted plywood walls. Jim. There we go. But on the other hand, Len, you know, there's plenty of cheese to draw the mice through the maze. So, you know, it's just... <laughs> It's true. Speaking of my gym, uh, side note here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I said this in the show, but I recently moved mm -hmm. to a new condo in Celebration mm -hmm. downtown. And, out, you know, sort of walking around the neighborhood, there's a ton of construction going on in Celebration. And so across the street sort of from where I am is one of those like they're gutting basically mm -hmm. the, the entire three-story condo. And I can tell this because there's a giant sort of dumpster, mm -hmm. like a semi-truck sized dumpster sitting outside where construction workers are you know, breaking apart whatever's inside the house and then bringing it out. And I was sort of walking by this one day and I noticed like in all the drywall that they've pulled out and all the like kitchen cabinets and stuff. And there's no pleasant way to say this, Jim, a lot of like bug remnants or mm -hmm. indications of like insects. And, you know, part of me was like, oh my God, that's gross. But the other part of me was like, this is central Florida mm -hmm. in the summer. You cannot live in central Florida and not have bugs. It's a fact of life. You can mm -hmm. minimize it. You can spray, you can do whatever you want. It, it's a fact of life. There are insects in buildings in Florida. And it reminded me of the, the first thing I thought of after I thought of like, oh my God, I've got to you know, bring these terminators to my new condo so I make sure that everything's okay, mm -hmm. was what happens when they tear down the buildings in Epcot, which are now like 40 years old. And again, Disney could do, Disney does a great job at pest uh, control and things like that. I'm not, not saying they don't. But any building that's 40 years old in Florida has its fair share of critters. Mm -hmm. Is there a plan for this? Just up the street now, we have those marketplace booths that have been added in 2016, 2017. And, and so these are the ones in, in Future World. There are things like, I think we talked about this on, on the last show. Yeah, there are like the food and fire booths are right there, right next to the club. right pool. up the street. So you got, let's just say they'll, they'll be paying extra close attention to those. And But again, Disney's got a, a wonderful service. And, you know, they've been handling this since 1971. And at the very least, given the size of the cockroaches in Florida, the nice thing is, you know, worst case scenario, you can throw saddles on these things. And there's another ride at Epcot. <laughs> it's the Bantha ride that should have gone into Galaxy's Edge. There right? you go. All right, Jim, in, uh, in other news, Disney announced more details for the Beauty and the Beast Lounge at the Grand Floridian. It's got an official name, the Enchanted Rose. And some details about the rooms. Disney says uh, the lounge includes a chandelier inspired by Bill's ball gown, as well as a formal library showcasing classical Baroque designs and French 
furnishings, a garden room takes its inspiration from the enchanted forest surrounding the castle and a natural patio evokes the romance of Beast's Garden Terrace. No word on whether Beast's Garden Terrace had 98% humidity like uh, Central Florida does. I I did I missed that part of the movie, apparently. Maybe it was cut, left on the cream. Do you remember that scene, Len? They were sitting there sipping their cups of brie. <laughs> was Bell sweating in that one? I don't remember that scene. Uh, Maybe it's the director's cut that I didn't get. Anyway, Tim, the, uh, the menu includes caviar, which fits into something I heard a couple of years ago about a caviar bar coming to the Grand Flow to compliment Victorian Alberts. But let's suppose this is a wild success, right? I'm setting aside the fact that I still don't understand what Beauty and the Beast has to do with the Grand Floridian's architecture. Whatever, looking past that. Mm -hmm. Is this something that Disney wants to roll out at other deluxe resorts? There have been conversations and there have been focus groups. The hard part of this is when you look at the poly or for that matter, the contemporary, just the contemporary's design Makes right. this problematic. Right. You don't have, there are no rooms in the atrium per se, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And then the poly, I mean, if we're going to see construction there going forward, it's those long talked about towers. That's why, the, you know, they took that giant fountain and that lovely sort of atrium thing out of the lobby. Mm -hmm. You know, the notion that hundreds of more people were supposed to be coming to this resort every day. Right. The flow, this worked, this fit naturally. And I know... There's been some discussion about trying to do something similar at Wilderness Lodge, but face it, again, this is about... Well, the about thing at Wilderness Lodge didn't work. Remember, the, for, for DVC members, they had that lounge mm -hmm. out by Geyser Point, and that, that was like $50 per person per day for DVC members, yep. where you got basically a club-level concierge lounge, where you got food in, you know, in the morning and afternoon and, and evening. Mm -hmm. And that didn't work out at all. Well, no, no, no. I mean, that was location. It's not inside the building, right? You had to yeah, walk outside I mean, for you know, this is wonderfully convenient, you know, if you like hiking, which, again, Wilderness Lodge. Yeah. I remember getting stuck there once in the rain, and when I say stuck there, I mean, there were three people in the lounge and we had food for 40 <laughs> and it was perfectly air conditioned and I had my own set of couches. It's not like, you know, I there was no hardship mm -hmm. involved in mm -hmm. it, but it, it rained for like an hour. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to go out in this rain, but that was part of the problem, right? The lounge wasn't attached to the building. Yeah. And I think that, that had something mm -hmm. to do with it. I think you're right. Then when you factor in the sprawl of, of Copper Creek and the villas, and it just sort of yeah. like, if you're looking for a central location, we have something for all three of these groups of people to make use of. It's a yeah. hard call. I'm interested to see what uh, what the Riviera does oh, around yeah. this, because the rumor is that there is one in the Riviera. Okay. That certainly makes sense. But again, that whole complex was built with design ideas of our era, accommodating what way people want a vacation today. So who doesn't want a snack uh, in the middle of their uh, in the middle of their day? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> if I could find the car keys, I could go get a snack. <laughs> Damn it. Speaking of food, Jim, mm. uh, last week we did a show on the 2019 Food and Wine Festival at Epcot, and I neglected to mention that one of my go-to food people, Chef Todd, mm -hmm. has a free app called Festival of Food that guides you through the various booths to find the best offerings there. It's available for Apple and Android phones. It's on their respective app stores. Give the Festival of Food app a try if you're headed down to Epcot this fall and let us know how it works. Very cool. All right, Jim, on to listener questions. Another public service announcement. This one from our friend Brian, who says... I just checked into the Grand Floridian for one night at the end of a Southern California trip. Two surprising things happened at check-in. One, I was given a free room upgrade. Two, I was offered a rate of $279 a night to extend our stay per night. And it was told that it may be possible to do it for several days, day by day. And Brian writes that he, uh, he already had a flight booked back to Seattle tomorrow, but he may try to add a day or two to take advantage of basically what is a half-off rate 
at the Grand Californian Gym. My point here, $300 a night is less than what some people are paying for rent in California. What's going on at the Grand Californian? You've got Halloween time going at DCA and Disneyland. In theory, this is a time when you know, this hotel should have no trouble filling up those rooms. If you're talking about locals who just drive in from less than 100 miles away, you, you potentially can have a, a relatively flush, busy period and still have trouble filling hotel rooms. And Because locals go home at night to their own houses. Yeah. What's the latest status on, on Anaheim's Galaxy's Edge? What are you hearing from the crowd calendar side of things? I looked from, let's say, the end of May when Galaxy's Edge opened through the first week of September, mm-hmm. and crowds are basically flat Oof. with year over year to, to 2018. Wow. Okay. That tells you something right there. This was not the plan. And they initially priced these hotel rooms accordingly, figuring they'd have mm-hmm. a smash hit. So two seventy nine a night for the Great Floridian is a good rate. Oh no, absolutely. You know, I mean, again, that hotel, that that beautiful, beautiful hotel, which just in the last couple of years underwent an upgrade and changing out the soft goods and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, that's not good news, Lynn. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, mm-hmm. uh, again, a lot of success banking on uh, as running on the rise of the resistance. We'll mm-hmm. see. There we go. All right, Jim. A question from our pal James. Mm-hmm. Back in February 2019, Disney announced the $12,000 World of Dreams tour. It was described as a fully customizable tour, and it was suggested that unique requests would be granted as long as they were within reason. I was wondering if you've been on the tour or if you've talked to anyone who did, and uh, James is curious about what kinds of experiences were allowed or not allowed, mm-hmm. and if they felt the tour was worth it. So, James, I actually was on a separate tour last week in the Magic Kingdom and asked this exact question to our tour guide. Uh, so here's how it worked out. The uh, the original premise that we'd heard was that you could make suggestions to Disney and if it was reasonable, you would do it. Uh, turns out that that's not how it works these days. Uh, as you can imagine, Disney's lawyers were probably not on board with people dreaming up wild ideas and attempting to do them without sort of the requisite vetting. So what it is now is they have a list of like special experiences like a Chinese menu, select some from column A, select come from, some from column B that aren't available on regular tours, um, but that you can do. And so basically what it does, the, the 12 grand gets you access to other experiences that you don't get on normal tours, but it's still, you know, Disney picking the things and then you selecting from that list of things that Disney picks. I am hmm. not entirely sure that that's worth $12,000. $12,000 is a lot of money for those experiences. So I uh, haven't gone on it yet. I'm waiting for the, the discount version to happen and then we'll see. Okay. But that's uh, that's where it's at now. So it's uh, slightly different than we'd originally heard. Mm-hmm. If anyone's been on this, if any of our listeners have been on this tour, let me know how it is. I would love to hear about it. All right. Uh, another uh, listener question, more of a comment, Jim, from our best buddy, David, who writes in with another callback to our previous show. David writes, I seem to remember hearing you guys talk about a Disney survey that asked about private yachts. And the reason uh, David writes in is because the Ritz-Carlton has announced that it's going to be offering that kind of service you can check it out at RitzCarltonYachtCollection.com. Jim, I looked at these cruises, and yes, they are extremely nice. As you can imagine, on a small yacht, all of the accommodations are fabulous. You get very personalized service. There's almost a one-to-one staff-to-guest ratio. And the thing that they're promoting on Ritz-Carlton is that you get up close to a lot of these destinations. So you get to pull into small docks. You get to pull into small areas around the Caribbean. Basically, more you can jump off the side of the boat and uh, and dive. It actually reminded me, Jim, of remember the uh, the Impressions de France 
film where they're doing the Riviera and they actually have a small boat that a guy jumps into the, the water oh, from. Yeah, 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 yeah. It reminded me exactly of that. The, the promo video from the Ritz-Carlton mm-hmm. reminded me exactly of that. But here's a couple of interesting things. One, they're, they're cruising to the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, Northern Europe, whale watching in Canada. So sort of the big destinations. And the, uh, the tagline is for this is uh, set sail for the world's yachting playgrounds, which somehow manages to sound really expensive as well as be really expensive. But I bring this up, Jim, because the rumor is that the next, next set of Disney cruise ships, mm-hmm. starting with the Disney Wish, is supposed to have more concierge-level rooms, which means they're targeting a similar clientele. And, and here's why it's interesting. I priced out a seven-night Southern Caribbean cruise on the Ritz-Carlton in February 2020, which starts at $6,100 per person, $12,200 for two people. Twelve grand is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's a standard cruise cabin, if the word standard applies to a Ritz-Carlton yacht, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And Disney has a similar cruise on the Wonder next year, a Southern Caribbean cruise. And the cheapest concierge room there is a one-bedroom, which currently goes for $5,150 per person, or about a grand less than the Ritz. And, and granted, Disney's one-bedroom is much larger than the Ritz-Carlton standard room, no doubt. But still, for $1,000 more per person, you upgrade from a mass market cruise ship to a yacht. And that, that's an interesting value proposition there, isn't it? Yeah. For nine, uh, 850, 950 extra dollars per person, you go from, yeah, I went on a Disney cruise to, yeah, I went on a Ritz-Carlton yacht. Wow. That seems like you would at least take a look at those price ranges, right? I agree. I agree. You know, but again, the Ritz-Carlton doesn't have characters. And that time after time after time is what Disney uses to sell these experiences that in addition to the wonderful cruise experience, you have these character-based entertainments. And I don't know if I'm willing to, for a thousand dollar difference, to travel on a really for real yacht as opposed to, well, you know, you have a reserved seating and, you know, Rapunzel's tower. Yeah. That's my, uh, that, that's my thing. So there, there, there are a certain number of Mm -hmm. Disney cruise line guests that are adults without kids. In our reader surveys, I think the number somewhere uh, the number of reader surveys that we get for just adults traveling without kids to Walt Disney World mm-hmm. is somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. I remember I forget the exact number, but that's a lot of people. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I appreciate seeing you know Goofy walking around the the ship and you know seeing Mickey and Minnie. But again, for an extra thousand dollars, I go from yeah I went on a Disney cruise to yeah I went on a Ritz Carlton yacht. I can see the characters in Walt Disney World, Jim. Yeah, no, that's true. So yeah, so this is the, the interesting thing to, to me. The, the bottom end of the DCL concierge market is about the entry point mm-hmm. for these yachts. And that seems to me to put a hard limit on the amount that Disney can charge for its concierge rooms to certain groups of people. Jim, do you think uh, Disney's looking at this trend? Just to circle back around to what we were just talking about with the uh, caviar bar. At the Grand Floridian. Yeah, the caviar bar at the Grand Floridian. Right? Yeah. So there's, <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's an upscale market and then there's an upscale market within the upscale market. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's pursuing the new revenue streams. And in our skybox world, is there a skybox within the skybox? I think the thing that Disney is hesitant about when it comes to the yacht business, again, it's it's kind of ironic just to, we started talking about the hurricanes with the Skyliner about to come online. It's just the notion of the thing of a smaller boat is, yes, you can get into the smaller ports and you can have more intimate experiences. But at the same time, the clientele that's going to be pursuing the Disney yacht experience, it's going to have some very high expectations. And when you say, oh, by the way, we have, 
you know, we have to return to port because of the hurricane, these people are going to get very out of joint. It's like the Disney daycare center or the Disney airline. It's like, yes, there is money there, but is it worth the aggravation? Right. Can we manage the expectations there? There we go. I still think that's a decent idea. Mm -hmm. Certainly something worth pursuing. People who've been on a Disney cruise line are going to have certain expectations about the Disney yacht. For what you just said about the characters, it's just like it's one thing to do a character experience on a boat that what has twenty four hundred people on it. It's another right. for twenty four. I mean, were there a hundred people, two hundred people on these uh, on these yeah, yachts? It's not I, a lot. Yeah, that, that's it exactly. I definitely want to keep an eye on this. And uh, Jim, if one of us has to uh, to take the first Disney yacht cruise, I'm holding out for the for the Disney canoe land, <laughs> the Disney canoe, <laughs> the exclusive experience. You know, just <laughs> so me, just me and Pocahontas. All right, that's all I want. Fair enough. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim is going to tell us about the history of the Universe of Energy Pavilion. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we're coming up on the, I guess, the anniversary of the opening or construction of the Universe of Energy Pavilion. Is that right? Actually, we're using the excuse of Ellen's Energy Adventure actually opened today. So the show's going live on September 15th. In 1996, and, and we're we're using that as kind of a left-handed excuse to talk about the construction development of the Universe of Energy for Epcot. So before we get started, Jim, folks, if you're at all interested in this topic, our friend Martin of martinsvids.net has the definitive video on the history of the Universe of Energy on YouTube. Search for it by typing in Universe of Energy, Martin's Complete Ultimate Tribute. It is fantastic. It's about an hour long. Great thing to watch. All right, Jim, So uh, so let's get started here. I know that when Universe of Energy was originally proposed, one of the one of the foundational pavilions for Epcot, it was a solar energy pavilion. Yeah, as far back as seventy three, Disney was toying with solar. You know, it, it had sort of an experimental thing set up back by the huge vacuum trash system that they used in the Magic Kingdom. But what's funny is that when they decided to make the Universe of Energy pavilion. In fact, one of the reasons it was one of the first things that was constructed at Epcot was because they needed that southern exposure. They needed a a sloping roof. The whole design of the building uh, was sort of keyed off the fact that, you know, this thing is going to be solar powered. When this thing opens in 82, there were all of these press releases about because of the panels we have on this roof, we can produce enough electricity to power 15 single-family homes. 15 15. single-family homes. And now contrast that. Technology was different back then, Jim. Certainly. I mean, the Reedy Creek Improvement District has just opened up that giant solar farm off of State Road 429 in Florida. That thing all by itself powers two of the four Disney theme parks in Florida. Which probably take more electricity than 15 single-family homes. <laughs> That's very true, Lane. All right. So, Jim, originally solar power, I suppose that we, we – I know we ended up with Exxon as the sponsor. I'm, I'm presuming here that Disney approached the Sun about doing a sponsorship and couldn't get $10 million a year out of it? Is that – When they'd hold up the contract, it would burst into flames. So it was like, <laughs> dang – Started going through with a magnifying glass, bad things happen. All right. So Exxon, obviously in the extraction business, they, I'm guessing, had something to say about something about a a pavilion being dedicated to solar energy. When they signed the letter of intent in February of 1978, we get that this is going to be solar, but it has to also have some sort of a component 
that deals with fossil fuels. And we're willing to admit that as part of this, that we will talk about the challenges of the future. Because remember, that that was what Future World was all about. It was going to be celebrating American enterprise and, and focusing on the challenges of the future. So Exxon being Exxon, it right. was like, look, we got to find an interesting way to handle fossil fuel, which ironically enough, Disney was able to go, wait a minute, the one enterprising engineer, and I've been trying to find out who exactly remembered this, but in the Walt Disney's Magic Skyway attraction, which again, the company built for Ford for the 1964-65 World's Fair, there yep. was a chunk of narration in this attraction where they're going by the pterodons. And you hear, here in a world of perpetual summer, huge reptiles crawl, plod, and even fly, while fabulous riches are born. Coal and oil formed in the decay of this lush vegetation. And it's like, that's our get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I mean, 15, 14 years later, yeah. right, as they're, as they're uh, signing the proposal, somebody's got to be around from the 64 World's Fair mm -hmm. in Disney. And they're like, oh, dinosaurs and oil? Hold on a second. I got, I got that in a file right here. The Imagineers were so confident in this pitch. Frank Stanek, who was the project manager for Epcot, in October of 1978, he's quoted in an issue of Disneyland Line, the, the insider uh, cast member magazine, of saying that the transportation and energy pavilions are so far along that they expect to begin producing blueprints by the end of the year and start show fabrication in 79. This is October of 78. They don't even pitch this thing formally to Exxon executives till November 8th. And then the final one for the board of directors in New York is on the 16th. But they were so confident that, oh, they're going to go for this primeval world thing. Get started. We're home free. This was in 78, they pitch it. Yeah, but the key difference is it's like, okay, we have this attraction. We know it works. It would hugely popular to the 64 World's Fair. 15 million people saw it since we installed it at Disneyland in July of 66. It's hugely popular there. But Oh, right, because the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs went from the uh, World's Fair when it ended in 64, 65. It went to the diorama for the Disneyland Railroad. Same dinosaurs. The fair closes October 17th, 65, okay? The Disneyland attraction opens July 1st, 66. In eight months, they packed up 46 animatronic dinosaurs. 46. I checked the mileage early today, Dylan. It's 2,800 <laughs> miles from Flushing Meadow to Anaheim, California. I was literally going to ask you if they got frequent flyer miles. Yeah. <laughs> You've probably seen either the... The film or the photograph of the T-Rex on I-5 on the back of a flatbed truck. And Disney got all these shots of these other drivers on the road like, that's a dinosaur in a flatbed truck. What the hell is that? <laughs> it's California. They're used but to they it. But they got the thing built in eight months. Now, contrast that with what's been going on with Guardians of the Galaxy a Cosmic Rewind. That thing closed in August of 2017. Has it really been two years? Not only that, Lynn, Bob Chapek at the last D23 Expo said that Cosmic Rewind will open in 2021 for the 50th. So four years. Yeah. If it opens on January 1st of that year, it will have been 40 months since this thing closed. When World of Motion closed, and that was also in 1996, Universe of Energy closes on January 2nd, 1996. 
World of Motion closes January 21st of that same year. So they had two major attractions shut down for rehab on that wow. side of the park. World of Motion, because, of course, you know, it was originally supposed to reopen May of 97, uh, but they had that safety issue that they had to resolve. It took them till March of 1999, a 22-month yeah, track. Yeah, 22 yeah. Month delay to get that thing open. But even then, Len, they managed to turn from World of Motion to GM Test Track in 39 months, Len. So a completely new ride with new technology in one month less than Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that's assuming that Guardians of the Galaxy actually does manage to open January 2021. I was going to say that they had the advantage of uh, being able to work inside the entire pavilion in, in the 80s or in the 90s, but they're doing that here too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so... I mean, things are more complicated these days. So. <laughs> okay, okay. Or on the other hand, you don't have a boss that you really, really want to please like Walt Disney. All right. So we've pitched the ride to to Exxon. They've bought in. We know there's dinosaurs. What else goes into the development of the ride? We can't, we can't just have dinosaurs, right? We have to present somehow the concept of energy, right? The dinosaur, the primeval diorama thing was the peanut butter and jelly of the sandwich. You had your two theaters... You also had your, your elaborate pre-show with an amazing projection film effect. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? It was like a Wheel of Fortune letters turning. Remember the turning effect on the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was groovy. The thing that I forgot about with the original pre-show was how abstract oh. the imagery was. Yeah. I mean, the concept of energy is sort of pretty abstract to begin with, but mm -hmm. a lot of the visuals reminded me of like the opening of Fantasia. There's representations of atoms and sine waves and uh, all these things going around, none of which is, all of which take a, a little bit of imagination, if you will, to figure out how it relates to energy. And I was like, I'm not entirely sure that this kind of pre-show would fly today, or people want more literal things, or at least that's what we're getting. You know, but that was the thing, that the notion that it was, it was going to be art. Again, a projection surface, 90 feet wide, 14 feet tall, and in compromise of a hundred three-sided segments. So each of them were controlled by wow. a microprocessor. And the idea is that they, each of these segments could rotate independently or in concert with others. And they had a black side, a reflective side, and a projection side. So it was sort of like the Wheel of Fortune. Uh, Very Three-sided so. rotation. Oh, how about that? Yeah. All right. And when it came time for when they did the Ellen's Energy Adventure update, which, by the way, the original name for that show, Len, was Ellen's Energy Crisis. Which, when they took it to the Exxon executives who, like, yeah, yeah no, no, we're, yeah, upper words we're not crisis doing it. with 1973 still kind of stings. So, no, 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 find another name. So, the Ellen's pre show, I thought, for, for being different mm -hmm. than the original, I thought it was, it was very engaging. I mean, it was, it was less abstract, obviously, in a way that, uh, that the original. Mm -hmm. Pre-show wasn't, and it was funny, right? I mean, Ellen was Ellen was uh, goofing around with the. It's the origin of stupid Judy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, so no, it would. It was very entertaining for what it was, but at the same time, the notion of you create this wonderful abstract art piece, and you open it to Epcot in '82, and people are like, yeah, that's not what I'm here for. It was aspirational. It was aspirational in a way that we don't see much anymore. When you think about, for example, just the theater card technology for this thing. Everybody remembers the line of, you know, you're riding on sunshine. But the fact that you had these 30,000-pound theater cars, Len, there were yeah. 12 of them in operation at any one time. Battery-operated, right? They ran on batteries. Yeah. They followed a, an eighth of an inch wide guide wire that was embedded in the cement. 
like I said, there were 12 of them within the theater at any one time. When you went into the main theater one, there were six of them grouped together. And you watched this movie. In fact, that it was the largest format piece of animation that Disney Studios had ever produced. And the thing is, it was just murky enough that sort of set the stage for the, the primeval diorama. You, you know, you had rain, you had volcanoes, you could almost see dinosaurs through the, the forest, you could see bugs. Yeah, there was, a, there was fire in the pre-show. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of, like, action in, as far as the natural world goes, right? Yeah. It was a show that constantly threw you, because you're watching this screen, and then suddenly your car rotates toward this, this curtain. And when the attraction first opened... What was truly cool about Universe of Energy is that the curtain would raise just a little bit and this wall of fog would come rolling out of the theater. And I so, remember the fog, yeah. yeah. And I remember as a child trying to inhale it deeply for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way towards explaining a lot of things. There we the go, there we go. <laughs> Stop huffing, Lynn. And then as the fog is dissipating, the first two theater cars roll into the, this space and you are now in the primeval world, but it's just before dawn. So few people actually looked at this, which made the Imaginators crazy. But if you looked up, there were actually stars. They had created a fiber optics starscape overhead. And then the lights level would gradually come up. And when it, it shifted from night to day in that early dawn light, that's when you saw the brontosauruses in their lagoon at the end of the room. And it's like... Holy cow. That was the way they sold it to the Exxon executives. Like, Look, for years now, people at Disneyland and the people who were at the 64 World's Fair, when they rode the Magic Skyway, they drove by these scenes. We're going to put the guests in these scenes. We're going to go straight in. Surrounded by Brontosaurus. If you were lucky enough to be in the first car, the cars went in two by two and then they would peel off one by one. And go through the rest of the building? Basically forming a train, yep. a single file train. If yeah. you were lucky enough to be in the very first car, what was cool as you went by the Brontosaurus Lagoon is that they had one of the giant animatronic dinosaur there supposedly noticed you and then moved over to the edge of the lagoon and looked down at your car. And in fact, that was the Brontosaurus that was eating the water plants that would then drip on every other car that went by. Oh, funny. Yeah, but for that first car, you got the, hey, what's that? And uh, the animatronic creature moved over to you. And in fact... And so it, like, like it was noticing you. Yeah. In fact, I sent you art earlier this morning the, from... Right, you did. Yeah, yeah, The thing that kind of broke my heart, because this was supposed to continue through the rest of the attraction. And anybody who's been on the Disneyland Railroad and seen Primeval World knows the finale scene where the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus are, are battling it out at the edge of the, the volcano. Right. And you've got that here. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, but the difference is for the Epcot version, what was supposed to happen was your theater car was supposed to go between the stegosaurs and they again they were trying to be a little more accurate with the the dinosaurs so that's uh an allosaurus that's fighting the the, the stegosaurus i think that's more appropriate for the period in fact that's the other thing that's interesting about the primeval world segment of this attraction is that it's the entire mesozoic era when you're in the very beginning i think you're in the cretaceous when you get to the brontosauruses, you're in the Jurassic, and I think by the time you get back to the pterodons and the elasmosaur that comes corkscrewing up out of that tidal pool, you're in the Triassic. 
that's probably lost on a it was lost on me. So I'm assuming it's lost on everyone. Well, no, yeah, no, that's uh, it exactly. They, you know, they, but the Imagineers knew that, but they still wanted to do it anyway. Well, that's the thing. If you read anything yeah, from '81, '82 about Epcot, it's constantly about all the research they did and you know that how they worked. Scientific accuracy. This is the introduction of the smellizer. So the notion is oh. the two applications, you know, it's the burning smell in, in Rome and in, in Space of Earth, and here it was the decaying plants, and it's like. Wouldn't you have loved to have gone to the meeting where you're deciding on what the smell of the decaying plants is? <laughs> Tell me what organic matter rot smells like. <laughs> Lots of methane, but still. Uh, like, no, not not rotty enough. You know, bring me more, yeah. more samples. I imagine someone like the Edna Mode character mm-hmm. bringing, saying like, you know, no, more stinky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that'd be funny. The very last effect when you're in that final room and the volcano is exploding they spent months working on the lava because you remember if you look at the lava in California, if you look close, wait a minute, those are balls of tinfoil turning. It's like, shut up, just keep going. <laughs> You're not supposed to notice that. Well, this stuff was liquid and it actually bubbled. And it turns out, you know, in one of those notes where I don't know if I really needed to know this, it's edible. In the worst of all possible scenarios, Len, the world ends, you're trapped inside of Universe of Energy, you at least would have had a food source, and that was the lava. I wonder why. Was it the fact that you could eat it? Was that like a goal, or was it just a happy accident with the materials that they used to make it look realistic? I think it's probably that. They kept trying all sorts of different things. I mean, it's mineral oil, it's petroleum products, trying to get the proper bubble effect and also... Well, it's really hard. because if, if you ever looked at like how a lava lamp is constructed, oh, yeah, lava yeah. lamps are technically very difficult. You have to worry about like the specific gravity mm-hmm. of the things inside of it. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it, it, it's a lot harder than it seems for, for something like that. If you rode Universe of Energy during its first six months or so, you had a far different show in the primeval world than folks did after that point. How so? When you came through the fog and night shifted to day, and about two minutes in, you began to get a sense of, boy, there's a storm in the distance. You'd, you'd see the lightning. In fact, what was cool is they invented oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. this Go brand ahead. new this. lightning effect. They would tie together 15 to 20 different strobe lights, and they'd all fire in sequence. And you'd get this amazing lightning pattern that duplicated real life. And if you were among the folks who were going by the Bronto pool at that point, it would actually begin to rain in that side right, of the, the- you know, that's what I uh, I got that from uh, Martin's videos that they were using actual water. They were they in the were. rain sequence of the uh, Brontosaurus pool. Yeah, and the storm got bigger and louder. In fact, as you got to the end, why all the dinosaurs were looking nervous? It's like this is unusual weather. This is really intense. You know what's going right. on here? And so you were supposed to feel, oh, now I'm safe. I'm entering theater two. I'm out of that environment. But the whole notion is we're going to do an indoor space that feels like it's an outdoor space. So we're going to turn on wind machines and it's like, it's inside a building. You turn on a wind machine, it has nowhere to go. And they had this amazing 500 foot long backdrop inside of that building that was hand painted. And what they found is when they turned on the the wind machines that would destroy that effect because the backdrop would billow. The uh, the screens because the screens were so big. Yeah. So uh, eventually, yeah, yeah, okay. six months in, they turned that down, and now you roll into theater two, and now now you get to what everyone always thought is kind of the problematic portion of the universe of energy because again, it's it's a, a company that does fossil fuel that has to do things like talk about solar and. 
nuclear. And a lot of people being kind would quote sort of rate this portion of university, University of Energy is, is the C. You know, because it became very obvious that the folks at Exxon, while being enthusiastic about the dinosaur portion, had trouble with Disney about yeah. coming up with a, a strong message. Solar or nuclear, yeah. anything, anything that wasn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... All right, so Jim, we uh, we finished the ride. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit uh, briefly about the p original post show, which was called Energy Exchange. Do you remember there were a lot of this is actually a very elaborate mm -hmm. post show. Uh, you could spend a ton of time in here. The one thing that I remember mm -hmm. about it was it had a um, a video bicycle game where you would pedal and watch the video, and there was also something there where you could turn a generator by hand and see how much electricity it produced, which was a great way to exhaust little kids like me. <laughs> it was, it was. Pedal, child, pedal, faster, faster. All right, everyone take a nap. What was problematic about this post show is it wasn't the post show. You actually had to go into Communicore to encounter a lot of this stuff. In keeping with the theme, it was, it was all about energy in general, right? So they yeah. had... And again, it was also very abstract. There was a kinetic energy sculpture, mm -hmm. right? They had exhibits on nuclear, solar, mm -hmm. wind, power. They also had, you know, oil, gas, mm -hmm. coal, biomass, things like that. But yeah, but it was it, for as far as post-show areas, this was huge. I mean, you could spend half an hour, an hour there. And you're right. For a little kid, this was a wonderful area because there were some amazing interactive attractions. But again, you had to physically leave the University of Energy attraction and then schlep right. over to Communicore. This is largely because that building had to be built in such a way with a southern exposure. Because the angle, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so the shape of the building that sloped, the shape was driven by the fact that how many solar panels can we get up on the roof? Yep. And they, they wanted to do that. This thing shuts down in 2017. But I want to point out for those of you who missed the dinosaurs that you can still visit some of them. Where? <laughs> the fourth life, uh, life of, the, uh, of the dinosaurs. They, I, don't, I know that uh, uh, dinosaurs predated birds, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, apparently cats as well. Go ahead. About the same time that Epcot is being constructed, Imagineering is also working in Tokyo Disneyland, which had oh, its okay. own primeval world diorama on its Western River Railroad. The Japanese definitely wanted the primeval world that they had seen at Disneyland, but the Imagineers are figuring, well, those are dinosaurs as we knew them in 1960. And paleontology has come a long way. Now here we are, you know, late 1970s, early 80s. And so they took the dinosaurs that they were making for Epcot's Universe of Energy and where they could double them for Primeval mm -hmm. World. They built two sets. So, for example, the Allosaurus and the Stegosaurus are the same in Tokyo as they were in Universe Energy. Likewise, the Brontosaurus family. So, again, if, if you miss them, all you need is a plane ticket Japan and just hop on the train. I think this is a fantastic idea, Jim. Okay. I've learned a lot about Universe of Energy here. I was, uh, I mean, uh, I, I was surprised. Uh, I was happy to remember some of the things that I had uh, forgot. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I really enjoyed this. I'm uh, researching this one. Good job. Enjoyed it myself. I just, I wish I had been there the last day of the operation. Oh, did, did you remember what Disney did that day on the very last show? They get them as far as the first theater, and they go. Oh, folks, we have to do an e-stop. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to exit the attraction through the primeval world. And oh, so walk through it. All of those people. And so you've got six 
Theater cars each hold 96 people, so what is that? 570 some odd people. All of them got to walk through the Primeval World section. All of them got to take wonderful photographs of those AA figures oh, before they went away. So I just wish I'd managed fantastic. to be there myself for that. That would have been so cool. Yeah, that would have been no. still a great uh, a great act by the uh, cast members one last time. There you go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. If you still want more, head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's putting on his Lederhosen for the Norfolk Oktoberfest celebration this weekend, September 20th and 21st in Norfolk, Nebraska. Apparently, Jim, calendars work differently in Nebraska, or it's the beer. Either way, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>